Okay, good evening. So over the course of this retreat so far, I've briefly mentioned that all of our insight practice, all of the pasna, is pointing us towards more clearly seeing what are known as the three universal characteristics of all experience. The direct understanding that experiences are impermanent or anicca. Because of that, they're unreliable, unsatisfactory, dukkha. And they're not happening to a permanent, fixed, unchanging me in here, who's in control of it all. So this is anatta, or not-self. And it's possible that for some of you, just hearing the description of these three characteristics might bring a feeling of lightness and relief. Or for others, it may bring up the opposite, perhaps dislike, resistance, confusion, or doubt. And it's true that as ideas, as concepts, it's possible that these three characteristics don't sound particularly pleasant or appealing. But with practice, as we start to experience them directly for ourselves, the concepts can fall away. And in their place, we directly realize the benefits of living in alignment with anicca, dukkha, anatta. Those benefits are more happiness, more ease, more peace, more freedom. Unfortunately, though, we can't just think our way into this understanding. As with most aspects of the Buddha's teachings, intellectual knowledge alone is not enough. We need to bring this wisdom down from the head level to the heart by contemplating it, meditating with it, exploring the truth of it in the context of our daily lives. And then after perhaps many years, that wisdom can move even further down the body, from the head to the heart to the gut. So in English we talk about knowing something in our gut or in our bones, and when our, understanding, when our understanding has matured to this level, we don't have to think about it anymore. It's just who we are, just how we are. We are fully embodying that wisdom. And what helps that process of wisdom and ripening, of wisdom ripening, are those two highly skillful mental qualities that we've been cultivating all through this retreat, sati and samadhi, mindfulness and steadiness of mind because it's these two working together that help us to see clearly to understand very directly in our own experience that everything is continually changing a nature so pretty much every guided meditation that we've done so far when we sit down and pay attention to our actual experience we see the breath comes and goes Physical sensations in the body come and go. Sounds come and go. Thoughts and emotions and moods and mind states come and go. Some of you named that this afternoon when we were exploring mind states, feeling surprised at how quickly they actually were arising and passing away. So we see all this change and we realize that often it's only our concepts about the experience that are static. And in fact, this is one way that we tend to stop, to try to stop the flow of experience. 
by unconsciously creating fixed ideas and views and opinions and beliefs and self-perceptions that temporarily fix that flux and give us an illusion of stability. But if we look more closely, we can see the suffering that those concepts can also cause because often they act as mental prisons and they keep us trapped in painful reactivity and resistance. So on the most basic level, whenever we sit down and pay direct attention to the immediacy of our actual experience without our concepts about it, we can see the truth of impermanence in every moment of experience. And as we see that more clearly and deeply, it might sound paradoxical, the mind becomes more stable and steady. And what becomes more obvious is just how unstable and unsteady the rest of our experience is. So when the mind has developed some baseline steadiness and equanimity, the stillness that I've been pointing to through this retreat, it's easier from that baseline of stillness to see when we move out of that into some form of clinging or grasping or resisting experience. All of which, as you know, is dukkha, suffering. So I've been framing the whole of our practice here in terms of that very simple knowing of the difference between clinging and release. And that clinging and release happens on both small and large scales. So we're training in noticing when and where and how we get caught in identifying with experience and also to notice how it feels when that clinging has released and we're back in the flow of moment-to-moment experience. So it can be quite fascinating to sit in meditation and just know the breath, the sound, the mind state, hearing, sensations, that moment-to-moment flow of experience just passing by. But then at some point, a particular experience arises and it hooks us. We take the bait, so to speak. Well, with that impersonal flow and then something comes up, often a thought or an emotion, and we go, yep, that one's me, that one's mine, that's who I am, that's how it is. And then we're caught, we're hooked. And often the mind takes that identification with something, spins it out into proliferation and reinforces those neuronal pathways in the mind to strengthen that same old story yet again. And at the same time to solidify that fixed sense of me at the center of the universe. Now normally on a longer retreat I'd give a whole talk or even two talks about that whole process of self-constructing and how to help it release. Now, because this is a short retreat, tonight I'll just offer a few perspectives on anatta. And then if it feels like something that would be useful for you to explore more, you can always listen to some talks on Dharma Seed. So just to say, one of the first challenges in trying to understand what is meant by anatta, 
trying to understand it on an intellectual level, is that due to language, the common translation of it as not-self in English, it can tend to set up a duality of apparent opposites. So we hear not-self and think, oh, okay, so self versus not-self. And then we can have the misunderstanding that the goal of practice is for the self to somehow get rid of itself so it can be a better not-self, which is a bit like a dog chasing its tail. It's a pretty futile exercise, and it generally just ties us up in intellectual knots. So rather than thinking of not-self in terms of a binary, it can be more useful to think of it as a continuum or a spectrum between at one end a more strongly activated sense of self and at the other end a quieter, less activated sense of self. And so then we can practice noticing at any moment in time where are we along that spectrum. So even right now, you might just check that out, see if you can get a sense of that. How strong is your sense of self in this moment? Possibly, some of you might be feeling a bit caught up in all of these ideas, possibly feeling like you're not getting it, or there's some frustration, or some judgment, or self-judgment. And maybe a negative sense of self is starting to be catalyzed, I'm the one who never understands things. I was always a bad student, or whatever the story might be. And if that's true for you, and you're moving more to one end of the spectrum, is it possible just to know, oh, the sense of self is getting activated right now, without adding anything extra to that? Others of you might just be sitting and listening, and maybe not all of it's making sense, but you're content to just let the stream of words and ideas flow, and you have a sense of trust that whatever's useful will stick, and there's an overall feeling of contentment or openness or presence. So for you, perhaps, the sense of self in this moment might be quite faint, just lightly there in the background. And so you can know, okay, sense of self is less strong right now. Again, without any adding any reactivity to it. Because sometimes that reactivity comes in the form of, oh, I'm getting pretty good at this not-self stuff. If they gave out awards on retreat, I'd probably win the award for the best not-self right now. And then, of course, we've moved away from that end of the spectrum to the other So it can be a very powerful practice to notice where, when, how is that sense of self strongly caught and to really notice the dukkha of that. Because when we really feel the suffering of the stiffening and the contracting and the clinging to a fixed sense of me, the dukkha naturally we want to allow it to release. And in the same way, when that has released, we want to really notice, let in, the relative ease and spaciousness and peace that comes. But don't take my word for it. You might just check this out in the coming days. How does it feel at whatever point you are along that continuum? Just in case that might be sounding a bit hypothetical, I'm a bit abstract. I'll give you an example. 
it's loosely based on some autobiographical experiences. So imagine that you're on retreat somewhere pleasant. You've been there for a while, you're settling in, sitting quietly in the hall. The meditation feels like it has some momentum. There might be some moments of relative ease and happiness and peace. And in those moments, the sense of self feels to be more in the background or perhaps barely there at all. And the bell rings and then this voice says, wow, that was a great sitting. I've really got it now. I wonder if anybody noticed just how still I was sitting for that entire time. I can't wait to tell my sangha back home about what a great retreat I'm having. And maybe you recognize some identification is creeping in. You let it go. And you just start walking slowly down to the dining room. And during the walk, you're just present with the flow of changing experiences. Wispy thoughts pass through the mind. And there isn't much of that old narration of, here's me, the meditator on retreat. Now I'm doing my walking practice. Now I'm being so mindful. Now I'm lifting. Now I'm moving. Now I'm placing. And all of that narration that tends to reinforce that sense that has faded away. You get to the dining room and you mindfully, slowly serve yourself the food. But then as you're ladling salad dressing onto your bowl of salad, the pitcher, the jug slips out of your hand and crashes and spills all over the table. And instantly, what an idiot! How could I be so clumsy? Of course that would happen to me, right in the middle of the dining room where everyone can see now they know for sure what a hopeless, unmindful meditator I am. And so you might notice in that whole hypothetical scenario, times of solidification and times of release. And so noticing, as we become more sensitized to the effects of that stiffening and solidifying fixing, we also can recognize more clearly the contrast of how much more easeful it is when we can live in alignment with anatta, not-self, and impermanence. Because it's the impermanence that allows us to understand anatta more clearly. In the beginning, though, most of us tend to have a fairly superficial and often ambivalent relationship to change. So if we look at impermanence more broadly, just beyond the context of meditation practice, it's obvious on one level everything changes. I'm no longer five years old, for example, even if occasionally I still feel like it. But my life is very different now than it was back then. And it will be different when I'm 75 if I live that long. So we can look around and we see that likewise the seasons are changing, the weather's changing, the sun rises and sets. There are natural cycles and rhythms that mostly we accept or even appreciate. At times we can enjoy those transitory fleeting aspects of experience. And when we're in this frame of mind we can hear descriptions of impermanence from the suttas and maybe resonate with their poetry. 
So there's a famous passage in the Diamond Sutra that's from the later Mahayana tradition, and it references an image that the Buddha used. Some of you may know it. So you should view this fleeting world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So if we're in a balanced frame of mind, we might feel the poetry of these evocations of impermanence. And mostly we can accept the natural rhythms of change. And of course, we're happy to accept change when it results in the end of something that we don't like or don't want. When that back pain finally releases, we're happy to know the truth of Anicca. But when it comes back again a few minutes later, we're not so keen on Anicca. We resist it. We want the absence of back pain to last longer. And something in us still believes that we should be able to make the bad stuff go away quickly and the good stuff stick around forever. Now, obviously, when we hear it like that, we can see that it's delusion, it's ignorance. But opening to this truth on deeper and deeper levels is not easy because it does touch some core beliefs. So if we don't have any Dharma training, the usual strategy when we contact something unpleasant is to try to escape it by going after something pleasant as an antidote. And we can see this playing out in the larger picture of our lives too. So if you think back over your own life, how often there was something just out of reach that was really going to do it for you and fix your unhappiness once and for all. So maybe when you were a teenager, you might have thought, well, if I could just finish high school, then I'd be happy. And then you do finish high school. And it's, if I could just leave home, then I'll be happy. And you leave home and it's, well, if I could just get a job, then I'll be happy. You get a job. If I could just get a better job, then I'll be happy. You get a better job and it's, well, if I can just get a partner, then I'll be happy. And then it's, if I could get a better partner, then I'll be happy. <laughs> and so it goes on. More money or more status or more fame or a more beautiful home or an exotic holiday or a sabbatical or a dream retirement or the perfect grandchildren. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting to improve our lives. But look for that unconscious expectation that at some point everything is going to come together just perfectly and I'll live happily ever after. Because with that unconscious belief, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Plus, it takes a huge amount of time and energy to try to get conditions to be the way we always want them to be. And even if we do occasionally manage it, again, because of the truth of impermanence, the happiness doesn't last. So unless we have some inner awareness, some mental training, we're just at the mercy of life's inevitable ups and downs. So I really enjoy Pema Chodron's writings in, in this terrain, and she describes this predicament quite well. She says, As human beings, we share a tendency to scramble for certainty whenever we realize that everything around us is in flux. 
In difficult times, the stress of trying to find solid ground, something predictable and safe to stand on, seems to intensify. But in truth, the very nature of our existence is forever in flux. Everything keeps changing, whether we're aware of it or not. What a predicament! We seem doomed to suffer simply because we have a deep-seated fear of how things really are. Our attempts to find lasting pleasure, lasting security, are at odds with the fact that we're part of a dynamic system in which everything and everyone is in process. So this is where we find ourselves, right in the middle of a dilemma. And it leaves us with some provocative questions. How can we live wholeheartedly in the face of impermanence, knowing that one day we're going to die? What is it like to realize we can never completely and finally get it all together? Is it possible to increase our tolerance for instability and change? How can we make friends with unpredictability and uncertainty and embrace them as vehicles to transform our lives? So these are the profound questions that our practice is inviting us to contemplate. Instead of putting all of our energy into the continual search for something out there to fix our problems, which from the Buddha's perspective is fundamentally ignorant. And one of the images in the classical Buddhist iconography that's used to represent ignorance is the animal, the pig. And the pig represents ignorance because it just snuffles along with its snout in the mud. It's just searching out the next thing to eat, even though it's already pretty fat. And its ears are flopped down over its eyes, so it's blind to where it's going. And the pig is a metaphor for our predicament. When there's no mindfulness or insight, we live our lives blindly, self-centeredly, greedily, and ultimately unfulfilled. So the antidote to that is to sit in meditation and practice, opening to impermanence, to change, to loss. And through this we develop the equanimity, the wisdom, the resilience to find peace even in the midst of all of that impermanence, change and loss. And this is how the Zen priest Joan Halifax Roshi describes the process. She says, we in our lives experience one loss after another. It could be the loss of a breast, the loss of a loved one, of a child going into adulthood, which is a way of loss for many parents, or loss of identity or loss of capacity. She says, my own experience of aging is there are capacities I had 10 years ago I no longer have. And I have to reflect upon those losses. And of course, the loss that all of us will face in anticipation of death. And it's something that brings great depth and meaning into our lives and helps us to articulate internally our priorities. What is really important for us? So this brings us to an aspect of impermanence that most of us, 
most of us find profoundly challenging to engage with. And that's the truth of our own mortality. So as many of you know, this practice is often framed in terms of the two wings of awakening, wisdom and compassion. And these two together, they strengthen our capacity to face into life's uncomfortable and painful aspects. So the practice of death contemplation, which as you know was highly recommended by the Buddha, is a way to develop that strength, that capacity to meet the ultimate challenge of our own impermanence. And this goes against some incredibly powerful individual conditioning and societal conditioning. There's a collective and community-wide denial of the reality of death, at least in mainstream culture. And that might come on top of our own wish to just quietly avoid that topic. And in my own practice, even though I've been practicing with death contemplation for years now, and I've done a foundation year of chaplaincy training and spent time volunteering in a hospice, I'm still surprised at times by the resistance to fully opening to this truth. So it was almost a relief then a few years ago to read a research study that found that our brains actually have a primal mechanism that distorts our understanding of death. There's something in our brains that makes us see death as just, it's an unfortunate event that only happens to other people. (laughs) And the authors study, uh, theorize that this is because knowledge of death goes against the grain of our whole biology, which is aimed at helping us stay alive. So we have this biological bias away from death, and then collectively, culturally, society, societally, this bias is amplified. And so we tend to see life and death as being in fundamental conflict or opposition to each other, instead of inseparably intertwined. And when we make death into an ultimate enemy, it just creates more distress, stress, and suffering. Because on some level, we do know that battling with death is ultimately futile. And this is one reason the Buddha puts so much emphasis on the practice of death contemplation, or maranasati, mindfulness of death, is its Pali name. Whether we're conscious of it or not, it actually takes effort to keep death at bay. So learning to face into our fear of death now, to gradually metabolize it, it can free up the energy to live life more fully, more consciously, and with more integrity now. And the issue of time is particularly potent when it comes to death. Because many people think, hope, that they can escape the discomfort of death by waiting for as long as possible before they start to turn towards it. And so they tell themselves, okay, I'll, yep, yeah, it's coming, but I'll deal with it when the time comes. Of course, the problem with that approach is that we don't know when the time will come. None of us here knows exactly when we're going to die. Every day, millions of people die unexpectedly from all kinds of causes. 
and no doubt every one of you here, you could name someone from your family, your community, your workplace who died suddenly. No warning, no advanced preparation. One minute here, the next minute gone. So the procrastination approach, it's pretty risky. And we might think that tuning into our own death and dying is somehow morbid or depressing. But when we see what happens when we don't do that, it might give us more inspiration. So some of you here may have done hospice work or you may have been around friends or relatives who were dying. And perhaps you've had the experience of being with people who were at the very end of their lives, but they fundamentally could not accept that fact. And in the small amount of hospice work that I did in the U.S., the deaths of those people were the hardest to deal with, not only for the person themselves, but their families and the staff too. On the other hand, I also met people who had genuinely come to terms with their own dying process. There was still at times physical discomfort and probably emotional pain too, but generally it was inspiring to be around them because they had this sense of inner peace and calm and openness. It was quite remarkable. And for those people, their dying was almost a kind of gift that they offered to the people around them. Now, possibly for some of you, that might sound like a distant or remote possibility. So I want to emphasize again that contemplation of death is a practice. And it's something that we can keep coming back to with kindness and patience over and over through our meditation practice and in our daily life too. Because one of the aspects of this practice that I appreciate is there's no right way to do it. We can be creative and try things out and find what works for us and always at our own pace. So we don't want to push or force this practice. And there's one further benefit of it that I'd like to just touch into now. And that's the power that contemplation of death has to really focus our hearts and minds on our deepest priorities and potentially to catalyze a stronger commitment to waking up to experiencing deep freedom. So Gil Fronstel writes about this in relation to Milarepa, the Tibetan yogi, who apparently said, without mindfulness of death, whatever Dharma practice you take up will be merely superficial. Confronting death directly allows us to work through our fear, aversion, and confusion around death. And done well, the contemplation of death can help bring a deep sense of peace and well-being. Now, we can't force ourselves to accept the truth of this impermanence on deeper levels. It could be a form of spiritual bypassing to try to pretend to ourselves that we're okay with change when in fact we've just shut down or numbed out or gone into denial. So truly accepting change doesn't mean 
denying or overriding the grief that we naturally feel in the face of loss. Instead, it's more about letting ourselves fully feel that loss without clinging to it, without taking it personally, but understanding that it's a universal human experience to experience loss. This impermanence, even though we might resist it on so many levels, we want to keep in mind that it also has great benefit. If it wasn't possible to change, none of us would be able to develop on this path. So impermanence is fundamentally necessary for our growth and our development. And on one level, that might seem so obvious as to be hardly worth stating. But again, we tend to overlook the positive side of impermanence in our drive to find security. And perversely, sometimes when we do find security and steadiness and stability, after some time, that very security starts to become stultifying, claustrophobic, a prison that we are desperate to escape. And the Belgian psychotherapist Esther Perel, who works a lot with relationships, she recognized our often contradictory attitude to change. And she talked about the reconciliation of two fundamental human needs. On the one hand, our need for security, for predictability, for safety, for dependability, for reliability, for permanence. All of these anchoring and grounding experiences of our lives that we call home. But we also have an equally strong need for adventure, novelty, mystery, for risk, for danger, for the unknown, the unexpected, surprise, for the journey. So you could say that this journey is the path that all of us are walking now as we explore our relationship to impermanence and start to understand where and when and how we resist change, cling to it, hold on or defend against it. And then having seen clearly the suffering, the dukkha that that creates, we're more motivated to strengthen the skillful qualities of heart and mind, such as the awakening factors, And these powerfully support that clinging to release. And then we can taste the deep freedom that comes from living more in alignment with anicca, impermanence, and anatta, not-self. So I'd like to close with a slightly longer quote from Gil Fransdorf that summarizes the crucial role of impermanence in our practice. He says, change is a central feature of life. It can be exhilarating, frightening, exhausting, or relieving. It can spark sadness or happiness, resistance or grasping. Insight into impermanence is central to Buddhist practice. Buddhist practice points us towards becoming equanimous in the midst of change and wiser in how we respond to what comes and goes. In fact, Buddhism could be seen as one extended meditation on transience as a means to freedom. 
The Buddha approached suffering differently. He said that suffering is not inherent in the world of impermanence. Suffering arises when we cling. When clinging disappears, impermanence no longer gives rise to suffering. The solution to suffering, then, is to end clinging, not to try to escape from the transient world. It is possible to find ease and grace in the world of change. It is possible to trust the mind of non-clinging and find our liberation within the world of impermanence. With deeply concentrated mindfulness, we see everything as constantly in flux. And as we see impermanence clearly, we see that there is nothing real that we can actually cling to. Our deep-seated tendency to grasp is challenged and so may begin to relax. We see that our experiences don't correspond to our fixed categories, ideas, or images, and we realize that reality is far more fluid than any of our ideas about it. Confronting impermanence profoundly in this meditative way can open us to liberation. The final liberative level of impermanence is the movement towards letting go at the deepest level of our psyche. Ajahn Chah once said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. And this release is sometimes called Mahasukha, the great happiness, which is said to be the only happiness that is ultimately reliable. So thank you for your attention. May we all experience Mahasukha, the great happiness, the only happiness that is ultimately reliable. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.